Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Chief Administrative Officer Scott Stewart and Deputy CAOs Colleen Clackbush, Jane Holmes, and Trevor Lee. Most of the time, the only place you can talk to all four of these people together is when they're in the council chambers. But as we reach the end of the pandemic and look towards the future, it seems prudent to pause and ask the question, what does the future of Guelph look like? In a few months, when almost everyone is vaccinated, do we go back to the way things were, or do we embrace a new normal? The logical place to start and answer these questions is to ask the three people who manage City of Guelph services and their boss. So the future is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. This coming Friday, Ontario begins Stage 3 of the Economic Reopening. Across the province and here in Guelph, it is a sign of renewed optimism, but don't mistake the start of Stage 3 as the end of the pandemic. All venues will still have certain limitations depending on their size and function, masks and physical distancing are still the rule of the land, and despite great progress in vaccinations, there's still a lot of work left to be done to make sure that everyone's had those two doses. So things will not go back to normal on Friday, but the hope is that normalcy is nearly upon us. But a city can't plan things according to hope. They have to plan for all eventualities, including the likelihood that things will never go back to normal. With all that in mind, there are several considerations for the future of Guelph in a post-pandemic world. There are economic considerations. Can local businesses recover and can the city start attracting tourists and visitors again? There are questions about transit, like how long will it take to build the service back to pre-pandemic levels of ridership? And then there's the matter of staff at city facilities. Is work from home going to be SOP for some of City of Guelph's employees, or perhaps it'll be some kind of hybrid option? These decisions are being made right now among the managers and supervisors in the various city offices, but they will all have to pass through the desktops of the four people being featured on this week's podcast. This week on the Guelph Politicast, we're joined by CAO Scott Stewart, who will talk about keeping the community updated about the rapidly changing COVID situation and when the state of emergency that is still in effect might finally be over. Deputy CAO Colleen Clackbush will discuss transit concerns and the reopening plans for city facilities. Deputy CAO Trevor Lee will tell us about the changing work culture at City Hall and the corporation's resiliency in a time of crisis. And Deputy CAO Jane Holmes, the newest member of the executive team, by the way, will talk about literally building for the future and the lessons she's learned about building a city from her time working in Peel Region. Hopefully, the conversation will give you some context about how the city, as an organization, has survived the pandemic and how it still sits, as the community plan says, to be future ready. So I caught up with Guelph's executive team earlier this week via WebEx. So I am now being joined by Chief Administrative Officer Scott Stewart. Hello, Scott. Good morning, Adam. Pleasure to be here. And in no particular order, the three deputy CAOs. Uh, So good morning, Colleen Clackbush. Good morning, everyone. And hello to uh, DCAO Trevor Lee. Good morning. And last but certainly not least, our newest DCAO. Uh, Jane Holmes. Hello, Jane. Welcome to Wolf. Thank you. Good morning. So, Scott, since um, you are the big boss, I I will start with you. Um, And it's kind of a point of clarity since under the state of emergency and and in the immediate aftermath of the start of the pandemic, a lot of um, new responsibilities fell on you. I mean, what is the, the status of this, the state of the state of emergency, I guess, is our is the city still effectively operating under that state of emergency or are things more or less back to normal in terms of operations? Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. Um, We are still operating uh, with the state of emergency, uh, you know, and and that will change, I think, over the course of the summer into the, into the fall, late summer, as we move through step three, as we clear step three, I mean, again, you can't just move into these things and it's perfect. You have to move through them. And then we'll see what the province, uh, you know, does. What are our provincial numbers, of course, as our local numbers, and you know, as a subset of all of that, our emergency operations control group still continues to meet. 
Um, we've been me meeting uh, twice a week up until about uh, two weeks ago. Now we're down to about one. We are once a week, not about once a week. And we, in fact, we just met this morning prior to this call. Um, just to go over our numbers, what's the plan? What's the plan? Uh, as as you, I'm sure we'll talk about our facilities and those sort of things uh, a bit into this conversation, but how does it impact us? And then, of course, the group that you've got in front of you this morning, they wear a number of hats. Um, you know, one of them is uh, do we do things on behalf of our community? And we're also an employer, so we do things on behalf of our employees. And it's a dual hat. Um, mostly they're not in conflict because we've been following public health advice. Um, but, you know, there is that that dual sort of perspective that uh, we bring to the table at different times. Um, but really the big piece is the governance piece and, and our, our thoughts and how we do things on behalf of the community. Along with that, though, is is... Can you imagine there being some sort of formal announcement? Because I think that's what people would would want to to see that, you know, it's like the state of emergency is over. We're now to like a regular state of business, even though things may change. Like, is there going to be some formality to that? Can you imagine? Uh, yeah, yes, it's the simple answer to that, Adam. I, <laughs> I, I think that will come. Um, you know, the mayor has to. He gets to sign it. I I I get to sign it, um, and, and we'll do that formality of the emergency is over, and that will happen. You know, in the next, I think, in the next number of weeks. Again, I'll I'll link it to sort of uh, getting into step three, getting through step three, and of course we work with our great you know colleagues at uh, our local public health, Wellington Duff and Guelph Public Health. That's the advice that we'll take, and then you'll see that formality come to an end. And yes, we'll return to some formal normalcy, although I don't know what exactly that will look what <laughs> looks like it looked like in 2019, that's for sure. Um, but it'll look similar. Um, but yeah, I think you'll see that come from us in the next, uh, I'll say handful of weeks, and then that way I'm not trapped by, you know, you said it was two and it turned out to be, you know, 16 days. And the next uh, few weeks, I think you'll, you'll see that formality happen. Colleen? I was just going to jump in and help Scott out a bit with the legalese because it is actually a declaration under the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, which gets a bit bureaucratic sounding, but because emergency management sits in my area, it uh, is top of mind. And so we actually declared that state of emergency under the provincial legislation. And so we actually have to undeclare it. And as Scott said, both he and the mayor have to sign that. Um, Scott, as the commander of our uh, emergency operations control group, and obviously the mayor is the head of council. So it's a very, very formalized legislative process, and we have to notify the province when that so okay good note adam i'm just going to say yes. i hope you picked up on that little thread there i got a new title in there the commander <laughs> which you know we all love it's a, or well maybe we don't all love but yeah it's a bit of a snicker as well around the uh, city hall that you get a title under this emergency operations uh as long as there's not a uniform that goes with it i think we're, yeah. we're okay with letting you have that no. title. yeah no <laughs> uniform <laughs> Colleen, uh, since you jumped in, I'll, I'll throw the next question to you. Um, and it's it's one I wanted to ask, especially to you, because, you know, a lot of the stuff or a lot of the things that have been affected by the pandemic have fallen under your like a lot of the public facing things, transit, um, things like the River Run Center, culture, um, parks, you know, have you kind of felt especially not necessarily put upon, but I mean, in terms of like the managerial requirements you're, you're called to do every day. I mean, how has the last 15 months been uh, in your office? <laughs> um, sure. Thanks for the question. And yeah, it's interesting, especially in public services, because we have sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, our paramedics have never been busier than we have in the last 15 months. And we've been called upon to help with um, swabbing and mass vaccination clinics. And we had paramedics redeployed into the GTA at the request of the province to help with patient transfers at the height of uh, of the third wave. Um, obviously, all of the emergency services, our bylaw officers, fire paramedics have been very, very taxed. And um, we have this challenge that, especially in paramedics, you know, having being short staffed, um, struggling to even get people their vacation time because the demands on the healthcare system um, have been so great. And it's been amazing that our paramedics have stepped up. They're still doing vaccination clinics. I think even this morning, we've got paramedics out, out helping with vaccinations, in home vaccinations. They've been doing a lot of the vaccinations in the health unit for shutting. So that's been really, really amazing. And then on the other side of the spectrum, as you talked about, we have all of those public facing services that have been open and then closed 
and then opened partly and then closed. Um, and we're doing that back and forth. We have some like River Run and Sleeman where um, with this move to phase three, this will be the first time the Nighthawks, I think will be the first that we have spectators in the building. Um, and that's been really, I think, nice, but it's really been, I would say taxing is a good word for the staff because of the, you know, we hear the announcements from the province the same moment everybody else does. We don't have an advance heads up. So there was that one weekend where playgrounds were closed Oh, wait, no, they're not. Um, and mm. so we literally pulled staff in on overtime to put up signage and close down our playgrounds when we heard the announcement at four o'clock like everyone else. And then the next day on Saturday, we had to pull all the same staff back in. Um, we take all of our direction from the province. None of the decisions about what's open or closed rests with the municipality, but it's ours to enforce. And so our bylaw officers, it's been a really, really busy few months and it's been hard because they're enforcing rules set by another level of government. And that we know that that's our reality. Um, but then when you look at our rec centers, knowing what is open, what's closed, what we're allowed to have, um, that's changing again this week. Um, and so just adapting to that. We've also used two of our recreation centers for what I would consider to be the greater community good. One, when we used Vic Road as an assessment center and now using West End as a mass vaccination clinic and for all the right reasons, but that also comes with its own challenges because we did move a number of our staff onto emergency leave. Um, when we closed facilities down, we had to make that difficult decision. We do still have staff um, on leave, although wherever we can, we've redeployed. And so we have Sleeman Center staff working in the farmer's market still. Um, we have staff cleaning buses who are redeployed from other areas. Um, and then maybe I'll just end with transit because that's also been a really interesting one because on one hand, we, it, we always want more riders. That's our normal. But in a pandemic, we actually wanted fewer riders because we wanted to make sure that transit was safe for the people who needed it. So for essential workers who rely on transit to get to work, we wanted to make sure that transit was still operating in a way that was safe for them. But our ridership plummeted, of course. So mm -hmm. we reduced our routes, um, obviously with the university students not being here, and we reduced our schedule, which we know has been a challenge for people. But we're in that weird, it's the only time ever in my time here where we've actually been asking people not to take transit unless they needed to. And that's a really strange place to be. But um, number one priority was always the safety of our staff. And then our number two priority was making sure that we were delivering the right services that the community needed. Right. And Trevor, it's the same question, but uh, to you, it's kind of the flip side because a lot of what you do is behind the scenes. It's not so much the public facing, but you're also overseeing staffing decisions who's coming in and out of city hall so i mean how have you been able to manage things and and what kind of you know metrics were you or have you been using to to make sure staffing is is where it needs to be and and who has to stay home and and, and all these big decisions well I'll start i'll start off by saying it's it's been a learning in motion uh style of of evolution for us um, March 16th, um, we were chasing to uh, be uh, reactive and, and timely with the introduction of, of the restrictions for for staffing. Um, you know, if you take two points in time, um, uh, Monday the um, you know, the the Monday before that, the Monday the 16th, um, the city hall was a bustle. It was normal business as usual. Everything was moving. Transit riders were on their buses, and we had regular schedules. In advance by about a week to a week and a half, and City Hall was very uh, void of those staff who could work from an alternate uh, location uh, for the safety of everyone. And and then we started uh, the full implementation of uh, the the uh, protective equipment and the um, um, the sanitization stations and the the guarding and all of the protective uh, barriers uh, through all of our facilities. Uh, often we speak of, of City Hall as being um, a reference point for city services, but you know we're always mindful that we have many satellite locations that also re require and are uh, entitled to that same um, level of protection and, and concern for us. So when we look at solutions, we look at solutions broadly over the course of, of all of the city facilities. Um, and as Colleen mentioned, we did move a number of staff into a laid off position, part time casual. Uh, we also uh, transitioned 127 full time staff into uh, an unpaid state for a duration of time as we were reacting to not only the financial pressures, but the fact that some of those work areas simply were not functioning in the early stages. I would say once we got 
a good handle on um, the abilities to operate a municipality within that kind of a setting, uh, then we started to be very uh, transitioned over to being very proactive in implementing um, procedures and policies and, and, and screenings and, and slowly introduce, because if we all remember back, we did actually introduce staff back into our set, uh, settings and then we, we changed that and altered and, and had them all try and, and retarget or repoint back uh, to their home-based uh, uh, settings. Uh, one of the learned activities about this is how quickly we had to move into modernization and some aspects of digitization. Uh, council meetings, uh, I think our first first council meeting was March the 23rd mm -hmm. and it was fully virtual and we've had virtual meetings ever since and in, and I know Adam you're very attentive to watching and and, uh, and observing our council processes you're now seeing delegates dialing in and being on screen and you yourself were delegate once uh, just very recently and uh, you know that is also a, an evolutionary change do I think that we will at the end of this close that down completely and return back to a I'll call it a, a 2019 baseline. I think that we will find some hybrid between the two things uh, so that we can have um, the open and transparent government, but also the, the ability and flexibility for individuals to not be confined to having to be in City Hall Gallery, having to be, uh, you know, to a podium. We're not quite there in, on the actual uh, process on that part, and we will be wor working to roll that out. It will require uh, some upgrading into our, our council chambers um, settings. One of the other things I, I would say from a staffing perspective is um, we really did find that um, the efficiency and, and effectiveness of our staff working remotely uh, did not miss a beat or miss a step in the delivery mm. of work. Um, if there was ever a, a question in people's minds and then you know be a bit uh, uh, controversial to say well if you're working from home yeah that's just no uh, these individuals <laughs> delivered at full capacity the entire time that they were away. Their workloads were, were unaffected and the work got completed and we ran through a full budget cycle um, with a remote style of, of, um, of staff interactions. Uh, WebEx meetings are, are inclusive. They offer the abilities for individuals to, to link in from whether they happen to be within a work setting, whether we're in a home setting, and it's, it's really been um, helpful for all, all voices to be heard and for, uh, for good work to achieve. We're actually finding some new ways to dial back the amount of screen time. Um, we're piloting, um, and my colleagues may know this, we're piloting, at least in our CS world, a change that um, meetings aren't an hour. Meetings are uh, about 50 minutes. And uh, we're trying to limit times and mornings to give people a chance to get the, the, the structure of their day and uh, to get set up before they immediately jump onto screen time. Uh, so we're just trying to find ways to, to make sure that there's a good uh, work-life balancing even under these uh, adjusted settings. So maybe unless you have a follow-up question, I, I hope I have addressed the uh, context of what you're looking for. We're going to circle back to some of that in a sec, but I do want to bring Jane in uh, because, you know, Jane, you hopped on in the spring as the new um, DCAO of in Infrastructure Development and Enterprise. And uh, I can't imagine there's like a best time to hop in to a major position like that, but to hop in in the middle of the pandemic, I think we were still technically in, or we were coming down from the second wave or just about to enter the third wave as you were coming in. I mean, you've kind of, not to say that anything that happening at the, the corporation itself was at its worst, but I mean, you kind of have seen the city at its worst. And, you know, how does it feel to sort of come into an organization in the midst of dealing with a crisis as opposed to just coming in on a normal Monday and going to your office and getting the tour of City Hall and all that? Yeah, uh, thanks, Adam. It was a little bit surreal. Um, I know that uh, I, I came from another municipality where we were dealing with all the same things that you've heard from my colleagues today. So uh, that helped a little bit. I think it would have been harder if it was a year ago uh, when we weren't so comfortable um, talking virtually or meeting virtually. Um, I think it was, in some ways, it was easier for me to leave because I hadn't seen, uh, you know, I didn't have the physical presence of my, my colleagues uh, for a year by that point. Um, and then, uh, but it is harder to onboard, that's for sure, because, you know, even as we were walking around the building the first day you're doing a tour, there's nobody here. I mean, you see, you know, evidence of humans being there at some point, um, whether it's a desk that was deserted, you know, back in March or, um, 
you know, things just, just it's almost like a, a time capsule, if you will, as you're walking around. <laughs> so it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit challenging that way. But I would say that uh, I started on, on June 1st. So this is uh, beginning of week seven for me already. Uh, time has just flown by. Uh, but, you know, everyone here has been just so so welcoming and there's so much to do adam so you don't really have a lot of time to be sitting around <laughs> wondering you know how it's all going to work uh really to trevor's point it's just um you just have to get going with it and uh, get on with things so um it's been great actually so i've been doing a little bit of both coming into the office uh working from home um but what i have realized too is that uh, some of my the uh, my direct reports uh, the gms a lot of them started either just before the pandemic started or during as well so as we have our meetings, um, I did some site visits last Friday and uh, the GM at that point was even uh, saying to people, hey, you know, this is the first time we're meeting physically, <laughs> you know, so I'm not alone that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I think by this point, we're all used to doing this. So uh, as I said, if it happened a year ago, um, then I think that would have been a little more challenging, but so far so good. Good. Um, you didn't have to suffer the the cake celebration or the cake ritual when you when you left it was brampton wasn't it I'm... It, was, it was brampton yeah, yeah. so um no not the <laughs> not the and i'm all about cake rituals by the way so if we want to do another cake ritual here i'm all about cake um mm -hmm. but no it was uh, again it was hard to um to to leave everybody there as it is with any position but mm. um again it's uh it's it's interesting because when you go on to the meeting the next week and you're with a different organization you're in the same room slightly different computer um and different people so in some ways it's it's easier um, um but certainly that personal connection and getting to know everybody's a little bit harder as well but that'll come as things normalize for sure scott i'm coming back to you um Corporate communications are kind of under your portfolio, and I know that there's always this struggle with trying to make the community aware of just about anything, whether it's, you know, we're closing down, you know, Waterloo Avenue for construction or, you know, we, we have new pandemic regulations. I mean, how is corporate communications adapted and um, is, is there kind of less of that communication stumbling block, maybe because people are hyper aware of sort of the news and, and needing that information from City Hall? Yeah, and that's you know that's a good question because there is so much that we do that interacts with the public, whether it's you know, Mr. and Mr. Smith on some residential closure, or it's to do with uh, business and business owners and other other things. So uh, I I probably split it into into three groups. Uh, enhance communications with our staff because as a good employer, that's what has to happen. And you heard Trevor talk earlier about our employees and just like everybody's employees, really. Uh, folks, uh, they were employees, they were teachers, they were parents, they were spouses, they were same as generation. They're looking after elderly parents and, and still doing all that great work. So the enhanced communication of what's going on and how does this impact me? from an employer to employee perspective. And I, I think our staff have stepped into that uh, in a great way. And then we amplified our public health message. Um, you know, so I think one of those uh, unsung heroes of uh, our public health group is uh, our representative on our emergency operations group is Chris Beveridge. Um, you know, he, he does an awful lot of great things behind the scenes. And we amplified that message. And then of course, we changed our regular messaging because we you know you as you would know particularly, but I hope your audience would too. You know, we have a lot of public open houses. So that had to change. It was no longer you were coming to a facility and you would stand and talk with staff beside, you know, some schematic drawn on a, on a you know Bristol board. And so that changed. We kept some of our regular um, you know, Guelph Mercury, the Tribune. We kept that for folks that were not online because not everybody's online, you know, lots are, but not everybody is. And then we did uh, changes to some of our projects. Initially, we paused because like all of our emergencies up to this point, you plan for them, you get in, you fix them, you, and then you move on. And the duration is relatively short. So <laughs> initially, we had no idea that, we, you know, you would 16 months in, we're still in it. Um, that's an unusual headspace for everybody. So then it became obvious that, you know, the pandemic was going to last a little longer. So we moved into sort of that more 
let's make sure our online platforms know that um, have your say is in place we're doing a lot more work uh, trevor talked to you earlier about sort of our council so our clerk's department have kept democracy alive because we're doing council online uh, and but we were also leveraging all those existing platforms so that was a good place to be and if you needed to you could still phone us you could still mail us you could still email us uh, so we kept the old stuff alive, but we've moved into this new world on communications and being able to move through it uh, to an extent. You know, I think of some of the work in uh, Jane's shop or her folks just had, a you know, one of those big meetings on Clear Malpy, and it was an all-day event. Um, you know, I think it started at 12.30 and ran to 8 p.m., you know, with a couple of breaks in there. So maybe that's a new norm. You know, it's, it doesn't quite feel normal yet because we'll say it's a new normal. But, you know, we've kept that alive so that we can keep moving things forward and we find that creative space to make it happen. You know, what I'm particularly proud of, you know, of, of the staff that run those events, but also the back office things. You know, if mm. you said in 2019, hey, let's do all this online stuff, probably our folks, maybe some of our IT folks would have said, boy, that's going to be close to impossible. And, and our other, uh, the rest of staff would say, really, uh, an online meeting for Claire Maltby all day long? Um, so I think we've stepped into that space and we may stay in some of that space, of course, um, you know, when we come out of all of this, whenever that is fully. Uh, so that's been a bit of a, a change, I think a positive change, Adam, for the better uh, doing some of this stuff uh, online because there's an efficiency to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're still here, you we're still listening, even though it might feel a little bit uh, more efficient. So I, I think there's some real positive gains that have come out of uh, the changes, especially on the uh, under that communications umbrella that you asked about. But it's the embracing of it by all staff, because that's really at the heart of this is our staff. So you've got to have the right people, regardless of the format or the platform, really. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the new normal, Colleen, um, you mentioned how the city, like all cities, are at the mercy of the slings and arrows of the province. And I'm wondering how that affects planning, especially under under your portfolio, which is things like the Sleeman Center, where the Nighthawks and the Storm play, and there are also special events like Hillside Inside or, or whatever. Um, I love beer and bacon, I think was another one. But the, also the River Run Center. I mean, people probably remember getting the River Run calendar and seeing all the shows coming out this year. So, you know, how how was the new normal sort of affecting that long-term planning in, in, you know, those facilities? Yeah, so we've always been working, you know, and 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 Scott mentioned our uh, our contact at Public Health, Chris Beveridge, who's been really helpful and in even in terms of our planning. And we've always talked about September as the earliest. Um, recognizing obviously now we're going to stage three on Friday and we'll actually have some spectators in this summer but really we've been kind of moving towards a September ramp up um, with the hopes that we can be back up to sort of maybe normal-ish and I, I say that because it is that this whole thing has been hard to predict I don't think any of us um, you know 15 months ago foresaw that we'd be here in this position and so we're definitely planning for fall 2021 but really I think we're we're really kind of planning into the 2022 year um, we definitely hope we we know that the Guelph Storm is um, planning to play this fall we know that a number of our sort of regular river run rental clients are going to want to try to get back to something but we also recognize that even in this fall this pandemic's not done yet. Um, we're all obviously hopeful that there isn't going to be a fourth wave that is anywhere near as severe as some of the previous waves, but we also hear the data that our public health officials are giving to us and recognizing that masks may be with us for a while, physical distancing is going to be with us for a while, and that does impact um, spectator sports. I mean, even Sleeman Center right now that we know the Nighthawks can play at up to a thousand um, uh, people uh, in the specta of spectators and that's the maximum and so that's okay for the Nighthawks for this summer but the, that's still in place for the fall that's going to have an impact for the Guelph Storm so really it's it's hard because we don't have that crystal ball we're using the best data that we have from our public health colleagues and we're we've become remarkably um, I hate using those sort of catchphrases agile but I think I'll use it um, it amazes me really what would have taken us a lot more time and thought we're turning decisions around much quicker because we have to and so if we can get people back in we will if we have to slow back down again we will um, and so staff are planning to get back we're really happy that we've got our summer camps back this summer but they look different 
you know, fewer kids, masks, physical distancing, but at least we've got our summer camps back. So the fall getting spectators back into River Run and Sleeman is obviously of interest for us and for many in the community. And we're going to continue to look at options to do that safely within the provincial guidelines. But if I was predicting, I think we're still at least a full year away of getting back to what normal felt like before this pandemic started. And Trevor, I'm going to follow up on something you said, speaking of agility, the, that, that staff really rose to the occasion in terms of working from home. Um, is that going to be a new normal, do you think? Are, are, is it going to be the responsibility of some of your department heads to start sorting out like, well, Jane wants to work from home, you know, three out of five days a week. Uh, John wants to be back in the office because, you know, he, he likes the office experience. You know, it is the city going to be adaptable that way and sort of like meeting people? I think you use the phrase where they are in terms of how they want to work. And is there going to be that flexibility in the corporation? So that's a great question and very timely because this particular summer and into September, three of our departments are test piloting a, uh, a modeling of uh, an alternate work arrangement that could be resident going forward uh, for those departments. Um, we did actually do a great deal of uh, deploying of that decision making out to our general managers in each of the departments. So some of the departments uh, who had the capacity to go predominantly working from home, where others felt that there was uh, a mixture that was required in order to move the business of the city forward, they found solutions. So for example, if I can borrow your, your Jane and John uh, modeling, if Jane and John were both required to be at work for some facilitation of their routines and their work responsibilities, uh, Jane would be in Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then off and working from home Thursday, Friday, and then John would flip the other week so that we didn't have the two of them in. You maintain physical distancing and safety protocols and 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 such. So I think that there is uh, solutions here for us to explore. Um, they also help us uh, reconsider uh, the size and and space and utilization of city facilities across. Uh, across the city uh, and where you had um, spacing limitations that were causing some pressure points for staffing, this may be an opportunity for us to uh, explore um, leveling out that bit of a, if I can pardon use of the word of curve because we've heard it so much, but it, it has allowed us to uh, maybe look to ways to um, utilize space, uh, hoteling, um, I've heard uh, other hotspotting uh, of, of terminology. These are actually commonplace in many other industries, and they're now finding their ways. If they hadn't already integrated into city um, services, they definitely are here and very present, not only in the city of Guelph, but probably across most of the other municipalities uh, that we're aware of and work closely with. So these solutions will be here and for us going forward. And, and there's, econo uh, there's economics that make sense. Uh, they, there will be uh, returns that we can start to um, be reinvesting into the successes in our resource utilization because, it, you know, and uh, you made reference to Jane's onboarding. Well, if Jane was a brand new staff doing a brand new job, it's not just Jane you're hiring. It's a workspace for Jane. It's a computer for Jane. It's the technology supports for Jane. It's the integration into all the back office that that is required to support Jane's uh, continued and 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 uh, responsible employment and all of those things um, are ways for us to reconsider the efficiencies of how we do things. And um, a bit of a plug on July 19th, we have a service rationalization review that's coming forward and it explores a lot of those topics. But I know that's not the focus of your chat with us today. So I just wanted to uh, <laughs> put that out there. No, we always appreciate a plug. Uh, just to follow up quickly about something. Um, is the expectation that if staff is going to be working in City Hall on any kind of regular basis that they have the force of, of vaccination? That that's if, if I mean, you can't make people take the vaccine, of course, but is there going to be like a, a an expectation that staff will be fully vaccinated? So, I, you know, I, I will say we will work very closely with um, our public health on advisement to us. We'll be watching uh, labor law requirements. Uh, there is, I believe, and if I'm not, hopefully I'm not mistaken, uh, in news um, awareness that uh, it's now mandatory vaccinations for individuals working in a long-term care setting, given the vulnerable population uh, that those uh, staff members are serving. Um, we're at this point, we are not moving towards uh, any kind of a process that makes 
mandatory type statements. That doesn't mean that uh, in the event that labor laws change and that becomes uh, a part of a, of, a, of a normality across work settings, that that would be uh, something we would have to assess and consider at that point. Um, we will certainly work as collaboratively as we can with staff. Uh, I, I would be remiss to say we are not encouraging as many of our staff as possible. It's it's very apparent in all of our messaging to our staff and to the public. Um, vaccinations are our preferred uh, choice uh, for the safety and protection of everyone. That's on point messaging with pre pretty much every other uh, news uh, broadcasting outlet that uh, is trying to to get a message out. So we are we are in that same vein, and we have faced questions about what does this mean. And our our aspect is focused on safe, secure, and healthy workplaces for our staff to to be uh, operating in on all of our satellite locations. So I, I, I'm not specifically answering your question because I think that is really a work in progress and yeah. that uh, we will be assessing and, and adjusting and responding uh, as timely as we can to to this, I think, changing perspective. It's not just for us as a municipality. You know, other businesses are, are also considering what they what do they do. So, Right. Jane, from your perspective and appreciating you've been on the job for seven weeks, you know, how has COVID sort of changed like the facility, like in terms of managing the facilities in Guelph and like the impact on building new facilities, because we have two major pieces of municipal and in infrastructure uh, on the calendar uh, that will come to fruition in the next few years. Um, are we going to see sort of like long term impacts from the pandemic and sort of like the way we design buildings and, and the way we design public spaces? Um, well, I, I kind of hope so. I mean, this is the pandemic does provide us this just a rare opportunity to, um, you know, when we had to change and we had to pivot, we had to do it right away. We didn't have a choice. And so there's probably lots of lessons learned there in terms of how we design our facilities uh, for the public and for staff. So as Trevor mentioned, we are doing uh, these pilot projects, but um, a lot of uh, different organizations have been doing this for years and maybe this is what we needed to get us to that place uh, faster than we normally would. The other thing to consider too is um, you know our our road spaces so as you know the transportation master plan is probably coming uh, probably early in the in the new year um, but a lot of emphasis is on our uh, right-of-ways how we use them a little bit differently um, certainly uh, you know how things are going forward we don't have a crystal ball so it's really hard to figure out sometimes how people are going to uh, move around the city in the next few years how that how the pandemic might have changed it is it going to be sliding back to where we were before is this an opportunity to really activate some of our active transportation initiatives use our right-of-ways a little bit differently change our priorities um, and and sort of leapfrog, if you will, where we normally would have been had the pandemic hadn't happened. So I think the pandemic, it, it will really be a missed opportunity if we don't take some of the lessons learned um, from how we pivoted really quickly and how we want to see um, how we want to see things going forward, because now we know uh, what we thought might be possible. Now we know it is possible um, so we can activate that and move forward with it a little more confidently than perhaps we would have in the past. The crystal ball thing you mentioned, I mean, there is kind of this push-pull that people are assuming things that, and I'm thinking particularly of like driving and people, you know, taking their bike more and getting out and walking more, that things are going to kind of snap, go immediately back to like 19, 2019, kind of the way we used to do things in 2019. And then there's the other push and pull, which is that things have changed forever. Um, I mean... I don't know if, if you can answer the question, but I mean, how difficult is it to try and, and take into account these like incredibly different variables? Like, and, and you know, try and balance. Like, is there even a meeting in the middle where some people will go back to driving everywhere and some people just stay on their bike? I mean, it's almost impossible to. I can't imagine that pressure on you. <laughs> yeah, it's um well, just like all municipalities, though, where we are, there is that tension between um you know how how much prevalence the car has and how much we want to change into different modes of sustainable transportation. Um, I think everybody knows um, intuitively that we can't keep going the way we've been going. You can't keep widening out roads. Um, 
you know, we can't keep using our car for everything. Um, I think everybody intuitively knows that. The hard part is how do you get there, that, that sort of messy transition phase. And all cities are going through it. So there's always that tension. Um, in terms of, you know, how do you make those decisions? I know a lot of times, you know, you don't make everybody happy, but my job is to try and make everybody as happy as I can. Um, <laughs> we try to to strike that balance between um, making that shift, making bold moves. I think you've seen that in some of the discussion that we've had around uh, some of the speed limit reviews in terms of the transportation master plan. Um, but how you get there and how easy or hard that transition will be really, um, a lot of it depends on the residents. A lot of it depends on um, how we build these facilities. So are we making it safe for everybody and being very clear about what our priorities are? If, our, if the car is at the bottom of the list, then our infrastructure should, should support that. Um, but well, we all know the reality is, is that a lot of people do still need and want to drive their cars. So how can we do that uh, within our spaces, within our right-of-ways that um, you know, keeps everybody safe and keeps everybody getting along. Um, but, but Adam, that change is coming. So uh, you see it in all municipalities. It depends how far you want to push it, how quick we want to be. There will always be people who push back against change. Um, but I, I think intuitively, when you look at our, our, you know, environmental goals, um, our greenhouse gas emission goals, when you look at everything in our strategic plan, um, I think that when you see some of the, the plans that are coming forward, particularly in regards to transportation, um, they are getting us there. And let's hope that the pandemic, again, gives us some lessons learned that can help us move a little bit quicker. Mm -hmm. And Scott, coming back to you, when I'm thinking about like the acceleration of things, one of the things I'm thinking about is the, the Smart Cities Office and our food future. Um, you know, from, from your point of view, like, how has that sort of how's the pandemic sort of accelerated whatever best laid plans there were for that office because it seemed like there had to be a lot of growing really really quickly in order to answer some of the challenges that the pandemic was presenting yeah uh, yeah I, I agree you know like a lot of departments uh, that certainly is one um you know that once you get past the the, uh, the excitement of you've won 10 million dollars and you've got to establish the office but i think they were able to adjust you know they made some uh, uh choices in terms of how to fund things so you saw some neat uh, things last year and some things this year that speak to that food security uh, what we've linked it to is to also to other departments. And so as much as, uh, you know, we've got some great partnerships with, uh, you know, various groups, whether it's Tennessee or the university, but there's the internal piece too. You know, we're data rich in a lot of places. So solid waste is a great example of, you know, food comes in your house and it leaves. And it usually leaves via the gray cart or the green cart. You know, that's where it should leave. If, but it also gives us some data on what's being thrown out. You know, so there is some interesting data here that you can start to marry things up together to help with that smart cities office. So they've, uh, you know, really done a, a great job. Then they were able to get another $5 million funding piece this year uh, through, um, you know, the, the federal government that is able to assist us and leverage that. And that gets spent locally. So that's that's one of those economic uh, spinoffs is the dollars get spent locally. And yet we get to work with things like, you know, the agricultural component of the university or the, you know, the, one of the um, provincial agencies, OMAFRA, and, and how that's done and how you leverage that. And then we've got a view for the county of Wellington. So that's the other piece that's been a great partnership there is. So here you've got this sort of urban footprint called Guelph. Um, and as much as we'll talk about how do you do farming inside a warehouse, you know, so that's interesting, neat and different, but we've also got that partnership with the county so that we're really close to, you know, what we would see as traditional farming uh, and how do we move from that sort of, you know, we're growing these things, but not just straight to disposal. So they've, they've run a, done a really good job of being able to be nimble and change and, you know, all those buzzwords that we're beginning to detest now. Um, and being able to, you know, make that adaptive piece happen locally and still advance the work. And, and that's the key, you know, still advancing the work. So they've done a great right. job with that. Colleen, I have to stay on brand. And as you can imagine, it gotten you on the line. I need to talk about transit. Uh, I'm going to try and 
combine two questions into one. Uh, number one is, I think we've come to understand the value of the University of Guelph in terms of how much funding they contribute to our transit system. Uh, and I know there's currently a negotiation underway about the, the new contract with uh, the CSA and the GSA about uh, re-upping the student bus pass. So number one, can transit survive without the students and uh, the money they bring in? And along with that, um, the interregional transit picture, because, I mean, there are going to be a lot of students who, maybe not a lot who remember coming to school before the pandemic where they'd hop on the Greyhound, but the Greyhound was a pretty big piece of like getting students to and from the city during the school year. Um, so I, I don't I don't know how you want to attack <laughs> those kind of different questions, but I mean, that's kind of where my, my thoughts are right now on transit. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to the question about the university, yes, absolutely. Those university students and that university uh, student revenue is an integral part of the business case or business plan for transit. Um, I mean, I, I would say that it is as equally important to us as a transit property as it is to the university. Um, it's, you know, obviously in the university's best interest as well to have their students um, be able to have a reliable mode of transit to get to and from classes when they're here in the city. And so there's a, I would say, a shared commitment on both sides, um, both between the city and the university leadership, as well as with the students associations um, to work towards reinstating of that UPASS. And I think we're all hopeful um, based on our conversations that that's something that could be um, in place by January for this fall um, as the students are coming back and obviously the students associations need time to have that referendum to ratify things with their students will still be offering that university um, student bus pass that's actually been available throughout this year um, for students who are returning back to campus and who want to purchase a transit pass because it's essential both for them um, to have that uh, available transit and for us to have that revenue because as you say it comprises almost 50% of our annual transit revenue. Um, without the university students, our transit system would look different and it looks different now. We have a number of routes that we're not running because the students aren't here. Um, and so, yeah, longer term, um, I think it's in everybody's best interests to get um, back to where we have the students uh, using the transit system um, because then that helps to um, provide us that sort of base that 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 helps the, the, the whole transit system. Obviously, um, we have a fairly significant uh, transit route review um, coming forward as as well that sort of envisions what 10 years looks like of transit and that was always planned and it's it's the pandemic has thrown us a good wrinkle into that because it's hard now when we've had this sort of drop in ridership for 15 months um, but we're committed to making transit a conversation about the long term COVID and the pandemic is a short term probably a little bit to medium term as we look to bring ridership back up, but transit needs to be a longer term commitment. And I think certainly the executive team, but also city council recognizes that. And so we're looking to that sort of 10 year horizon as we look to things like electrification of our fleet and enhancing routes. Um, and also some of the stuff that we're doing with those micro transit options, the on-demand transit has helped us to rethink how we're doing transit. The interregional one, that's definitely um, on our radar as something we need to keep working with the province, with Metrolinx on, um, particularly, as you mentioned, with, with uh, Greyhound not being available. Um, and I think that's something we're going to have to work with the university on. We're all eager and are hearing that the majority of students will be back on campus in the fall, but you know, like with everything through this pandemic, it's a little bit of a wait and see and then hurry up and get ready kind of moment. Um, and to my earlier comment about safety, we also want to make sure that as we're bringing students back in and getting more people back onto the transit system, it remains safe to do so. And so that's going to be our uh, our sort of juggling act in the fall is making sure we have enough buses running that we can keep people um, using transit and getting where they need to go, um, but balancing that safety piece. So there's a lot of moving parts on transit, um, but ultimately, um, and I think it goes to some of Jane's earlier comments about what kind of city do we want to be in and that those realities that face us from a transportation point of view, a, a solid transit system that operates, that is effective for all of the riders, university students, but of course across the city, um, that provides people a good alternative um, from using cars. Um, that's where we want to make sure we are getting to, and that's where that longer term uh, horizon and commitment is really important. I just want to get clarity on one thing. Um students coming back in September will have to get their bus pass through the city. It will not be through their tuition and they'll get the sticker and all that. 
Correct. So for the fall, yeah. it will still be because um, that uh, agreement um, still has to come for ratification. So we are offering that a post-secondary student, I think is what we've called it, bus pass that um, people can purchase. Um, and unlike the U pass where it's just automatically included in the student fees for the fall, we're still in this sort of recovery period where we have made available that post-secondary student pass that um, students can purchase. And we also partly did that because over the last few months, we've had lots of students from other universities who are actually back here in Guelph doing classes for other universities because they've been living here and working remotely. So we wanted to make that post-secondary pass available to all students who happened to be in Guelph and that will continue through the fall. So if there's a student from McMaster who happens to be living here in Guelph, they will also be able to purchase that post-secondary pass while they're here in our city. Um, and then hopefully by January, we're in a position that we're back to that U pass for the University of Guelph students that's just included within their student fees. Gotcha. Uh, Trevor, back to you. Um, I think a lot of people have come to see that the city was able to financially weather the storm, and that's part of your file. But I mean, in terms of the organization itself, I mean, I can't imagine a better way to sort of ensure the adaptability and the resiliency of an organization to go through like 16 months of a global pandemic. So from your point of view, um, was the city of Guelph sort of built to weather sort of any crisis and and what areas are sort of needed to be improved upon from from your learnings from the last year? So I'll start um, just with the, the baseline and this was um, I think topics captured in the media. Um, the city of Guelph uh, has had about five years of uh, surplus operating um, uh, results each year which have been building our contingencies and our reserve balances so when this pandemic affected us um, i can't speak to specific other municipalities but i could certainly make a statement to say we were well positioned to endure the brunt of an unprecedented unexpected event such as this and how we were able to you know weather using the term weather through that um, we also were very grateful for the support that came from the um, provincial government and federal governments for uh, their funding to us uh, as a municipal body and uh, the uh, safe restart monies for both transit and operating uh, have been um, sustaining parts of our business that were uh, adversely affected and will be also available for us into 2021. So there is some uh, residual monies that will be used and is being used currently uh, to sustain those uh, most affected areas of our operations. Uh, but I would say that we, we've, we've functioned very well, very um, honestly and authentically with how we've reacted. Um, we were, um, I'll say with pride, uh, one of the few municipalities that um, chose to be as reactive in the early stages um, to be maintaining our, our physical responsibility to constituents and businesses with some of the decisions that we made. They weren't easy decisions. They were decisions that we made uh, with the best uh, holistic intent for everyone involved. Uh, so we, we did that. And uh, as, we, as it has been come to... Um, be understood uh, that that event helped us significantly in that balancing of uh, the funding that came from Safe Restart as well as the internal efficiencies. I I believe it's something in the range of of an 18 million dollar effect, and uh, 14 million of that uh, we were able to uh, mitigate internally versus uh, other uh, values that um, that. They didn't have that same level of uh, of recovery built into the operations of the municipality. So, you know, those kinds of of um, adjustments are never easy for us to make as an executive team. Uh, we we had lots of meetings with staff and with our our unionized labor forces, and uh, and you know, I I think that that was an opportunity for us to be authentic and to be real with our staff. And uh, our staff have responded with a significant increase in our staff engagement. We did a pulse survey to assess whether staff um, have confidence and understanding through this significant transition. And uh, we've climbed higher in this past year than we have any other previous year that we, we have on record as far as the, the increase in our employee engagement and our employee uh, understanding. Uh, we've been asking and talking um, this group that you have on screen uh, is interacting with our our, um, our corporate management team more frequently than it ever has. 
And uh, we also have uh, introduced, and this actually is a decision that was made prior to the onset of the pandemic, but we initiated um, our union leadership meetings with our executive team to really strengthen um, the relationship and, and mutual understanding of, of, although we have to take um, positions on behalf of our responsible uh, parties, uh, we are all working in the best efforts towards uh, the the support of our employees. Um, and I know Scott has used the term and I've, I've now woven it into my language. Um, the staff may be their members, but there are collective employees and we are all collective employees of the city of Guelph trying to do the best we can. So it, it, we, we are in good stead. Uh, we have um, strong reserves and contingencies um, uh, funds available and uh, we will continue to be managing. One of the things that you will um, you will likely note in our progress report that was released a short while ago, um, we are starting to weave um, key performance indicators into the, the areas of management and oversight. Um, business case and business modeling is going to be the lead to any uh, significant decisions that we're making so that we can be ensuring we know uh, eyes wide open before initiatives are started. And that just does nothing more than to strengthen us financially and responsibly. Is it weird that uh, most people have to leave City Hall office to feel more engaged at City Hall? Well, it, it's it's. I think there's. I get your humor, um, <laughs> but I th I think that there's still a great deal. Like uh, you know, we have we we think of um, and again, I'll use the reference City Hall proper, and you can go from a staff complement of X down to a very 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 reduced level. But if you go to the fire station, you go to the paramedic station, or you go down to the transit uh, facilities, or you go to any other uh, solid waste waterworks, those staff members are still at full complement. They might be doing, doing things differently, um, but those staff members also participated in that increase. So I, I don't think that is strictly a, on the, the humor that you were taking that they had to leave to feel more engaged. I think is is that we have really stepped up the level of, of, of relationship building with our employees. And and the word authentic gets used a lot because we are on screen, you have four people just trying to do the best jobs they can to be responsible to to many, many stakeholders. And as as you when you present yourself that way, you're not you're not the person that sits in the office and punches a keyboard. You're a person who is real and is trying to demonstrate that. And virtual meetings actually the ability to not be a memo or a voicemail or a, you know an internal posting that gets put on a bulletin board. You can see, hear, feel the emotion that's in the person who's speaking to you. And I appreciate you, Trevor, not listening to the Daily Show, but I'll go on to Jane now. Um, Jane, you come from Peel region, and a lot of people here in Guelph see the development in the South End in particular and throw around terms like Guelph Asaga. Um, people are understandably concerned about sprawl um, development happening too quick. I'm wondering if you could sort of your experience in a, in a place like Peel region, which did rapidly develop, um, how do you ensure that like maybe some of the mistakes made in that rapid development in Peel region don't happen here? And, and, you know, how, how, how is Guelph, you know, in terms of how it's growing comparing to your experience in, in Peel region? Well, it's interesting that uh, there's a lot of similarities between uh, Guelph and, and Peel. Um, what was interesting as well is when I said I was going to Guelph, I think there was a, um, a bit of a sentiment of, you know, oh, well, lucky you, you're going to a nice, quiet city. And I'm, and I'm telling you, we've got a lot going on here. Um, a lot of big projects, a lot of exciting things happening. Um, we have a responsibility to make sure that we grow responsibly. Uh, we look to our strategic plan, our growth plans. Um, we also look to um, a lot of engagement with the public. So where we have areas like Claire Maltby, where we're looking at things uh, like Dolime, um, the things that are coming in the future, what do we want our city to look like? And um, how do we want it to develop going forward? So it's always about uh, having that conversation ahead of time and making sure that you're keeping that in mind going forward. 
Um, I know with our economic uh, development team, they are, you know, at, through the um, through the pandemic, they have never stopped trying to encourage businesses to come here uh, for other businesses to um, open new locations. And we've been supporting uh, businesses the best we can. Um, again, uh, you know, the businesses are subject to the same rules as everybody else. So you hear things at the last minute, businesses have to respond and then we have to respond in terms of how we're going to um, how we're going to support them. But um, I think when you have an opportunity and you've got, you know, these greenfield spaces, I think there are some growing pains. Uh, we can take lessons learned, as you mentioned, from um, from other municipalities. Um, but I think we're a little bit different here in Guelph. There's a, you know, every municipality is a little bit unique. And so what makes Guelph, Guelph? Um, so to keep that in mind as we uh, start to develop some of our open spaces and um, making sure that we're taking everybody along with us. So that's where that engagement becomes really important, uh, making sure that we're looking at our strategic plan, making sure it's aligning and, um, you know, being being able to think a little bit bold, you know, when you've got a, a canvas of uh, someplace like, uh, you know, Claire Maltby, for instance, and some of our other areas of Guelph where we're not um, that much developed yet, uh, there's a real opportunity to there to make it into a special place. So I guess the lesson learned is don't miss that opportunity. Uh, don't miss an opportunity to be bold, to stretch the limits a little bit. Um, expect pushback because you always do and change. Um, but to be able to tie it back to what do you want our city to look like? And it doesn't uh, line up necessarily with our um, with the election cycle. Um, we have had um, a very impressive to see actually that this council is um, approving those legacy projects. And when you look at projects like Baker's, um, when you look at projects like Dolime, Claire Maltby, uh, the South End Community Center, uh, the downtown revitalization, these are all projects that are uh, not for the next four years, not for the next 10 years. They're there to serve the community for the next 50 years. So you have to start thinking in terms of if we don't even know what it looks like, you know, how can we make ourselves flexible enough so that when things change in the future, uh, we're ready to accommodate accommodate that change. So, um, yeah, so I think just to turn back to your question is, um, yeah, trying just to imagine what uh, the future might look like. Take those, again, don't miss that opportunity that the pandemic has given us in terms of uh, what is possible, what we can do, and how quick we can pivot to do that. Before I wrap up, getting back to the humor Trevor mentioned, uh, the four of you have to, at the count for the most part at the council meetings or they're in the chambers with whoever's chairing, whether it's the mayor or one of the councillors, most of the rest of the council gets to take part at home. Who's who's ready for council to come back to the chambers to suffer with, with you guys and, and sit there in the formal setting again? It seems like I, maybe it's just me, but I think council's getting a little comfortable doing those meetings at home. <laughs> well, maybe they are, um, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> you know, I and Adam, I think we will have them uh, relatively soon. Um, it, it may be a staggered or a transition back to something where some are and some are not. You, you might see that the chairs are starting to be the chairs in the council chambers. So that's the, that's the beginning of it. Um, you know, it, yes, there is a comfort to, you know, look at, um, well, you know, half of us are split the today to two in the office, two at home. There is a comfort to it. Um, and it works. So as long as it works, I mean, that's going to be the key. Um, you know, I said earlier, you know, our clerk's department keeping democracy alive. And I, you know, it's a bit of a flippant statement, but it's a factual statement. Um, you know, and yes, and, and council, some are ready to come back in uh, and and jump right in. Yeah, but we will we'll maintain the public health issues until we are past that all, because there is some distancing issues. As much as the chamber is a lovely spot, there is some physical distancing uh, pieces that we have to get in place as well. And, you know, perhaps just as you're wrapping up, just as a thought for, you know, for your listeners, I, you know, I was sort of listening to the theme today a little bit. And, you know, if folks can sort of put it into the, their head of like, what does your day look like? You know, a residence day look like, you know, when they wake up and they have that shower, uh, uh, you know, it's because, you know, staff were working to provide that water and they flush the toilet, you know, and again, and, you know, if you needed to take the dog for a walk on the sidewalk, uh, you know, to the park, it's because staff were working on these things. And, you know, last winter, the roads got plowed if, need, if you needed to get out and about because staff were working or 
fire and, and paramedics responded to things. So as much as our life is different and it's, you know, those guys at City Hall, we're still doing all of those same things. You know, our development application still got approved. I mentioned this stuff with clerks. Potholes are getting filled. Construction is underway. So all of that good stuff that, you know, as a resident that you look for and sort of take for granted, it's happening uh, in, in because staff are at their work wherever that is, whether it's home or if it's sort of satellite or in a location because you know we've we're here and we're committed to the community and I think as the executive team sort of highlighted our north star is the bearing that we've been able to use our strategic plan and our pillars to guide us you know because as Jane said we've got a plan beyond the end of our nose um, for all of these big things we've got to get it so that we're not fighting over you know bike lanes and drive-throughs we've got to plan for these things well into the future uh, and that's where we're at these days with our strategic plan. So that makes such a difference for us and our staff that are in a variety of locations. Because again, as you know, the heart of any great organization is the staff. And in this case, uh, City of Guelph residents have got a pretty good staff that works for them in all these lines of business. So again, thank you for engaging us this morning. It's uh, It wasn't painful at all, Adam. Come on now. This was a bit of fun for everybody. I kind of like that. Well, I... Uh... I'm glad it was fun. Uh, some works, that's a good place to leave it on. So Scott Stewart's Colleen Clackbush, Trevor Lee, and Jane Holmes, thank you so much for all your time today. Awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks. And once again, that was the law firm of Stewart, Holmes, Lee, and Clackbush. That council meeting to discuss the service rationalization review is this coming Monday. The open session begins at 4 p.m., and you can find the preview of that meeting on Guelph Politico. There are three meetings of city council next week including that service rationalization one and they are the last three meetings before the summer break and you can stay up to date with all of those details over at guelph politico and that is it for this edition of the guelph politicast the music for the guelph politicast comes from kpm classics and sid dale the guelph politicast is usually recorded at cfru at the university center on the university of guelph campus and to learn more about cfru you can go to cfru.ca you can download the Guelph Politicast on Wednesday from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also download it from the host Podbean at guelphpoliticast.podbean.com. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can get in touch with me by email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. Reach me through Twitter at adamadonaldson or at Guelph Politico. You can find the Guelph Politico Facebook page at facebook.com slash politicoguelph. And if you'd like to help build that locally sourced independent media outlet in the city of Guelph, then please consider donating to Guelph Politico. And you can find it how at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time.